This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Happy Valentine's Day, and welcome to year two of Done and Done and the beginning of our season of Notorious. We're getting into all the high society and all the front row true crime cases of our man Nick this season, not necessarily connected by any geography, but connected by the spider webs. Get your passports ready, darlings. We're going to be going on quite a journey. This week, however, to open our season, we're going to start a little closer to home, a little closer to our narrator. We have covered in past episodes the fascination that Dominic Dunn had with the Woodward case when he was in New York City. Also, his fascination with the Patricia Burton Lonergan case when he was sneaking out of boarding school to get all the juicy scoop news. But if we travel back just a little bit further to Dominic Dunn's first decade, we get a whole lens on Dominic that will in some way chart his life's trajectory. It is a nine-year-old, Dominic Dunn, who has a faded and fabled visit to Los Angeles to visit his Aunt Harriet. And Dominic arrives in Hollywood as a nine-year-old, already knowing a lot of things. But also on this trip, he begins to comprehend some things, too, at a pretty early age. So many prophecies and Easter eggs to come as we introduce this season of Done and Done. Let's investigate. Dominic Dunn says it best in the introduction of his pictorial memoir, The Way We Lived Then, subtitled, Recollections of a Well-Known Name Dropper. I'm going to be reading from The Way We Lived Then about the most amazing trip our nine-year-old Nick takes to Hollywood. When I was nine years old and growing up in Hartford, Connecticut, a city that I knew from the age of four would not be the city of my life, my Aunt Harriet, my mother's sister, a maiden lady, as well as a former Catholic nun who quit the convent, a subject that fascinated my brothers, sisters, and me, although it was a subject that was never discussed by my parents, took me on a trip out west that summer. Our first stop was Los Angeles. For me, it was a breathtaking experience. I had always been starstruck, one of those kids who preferred movie star magazines to baseball cards. I believed everything I read in them. I believed that Paulette Goddard did something unspeakable to the director, Anatoly Litvak, under the nightclub table at Macombo. I believed that Louis B. Mayer, the all-powerful head of MGM, had taken Paul Byrne's suicide note. Forgive me for last night, 
he wrote to his bride, Jean Harlow, MGM's great star, out of Jean's hands and destroyed it before the police got to the scene. I believed that Lana Turner had been discovered by Mervyn Leroy at the counter of Schwab's, the famous drugstore on Sunset Strip. On the tour bus that took us to the movie star houses, I sat right next to the guide so I wouldn't miss anything. Actually, I knew more about the stars than the guide did, although he knew all their addresses. For years afterward, I could remember their streets and their houses. Shirley Temple lived on Rockingham in Brentwood, just a few houses away from where O.J. Simpson lived years later at the time of the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. Deanna Durbin lived on Amalfi Drive in a house where Steve Bacho, the television mogul, later lived. Clark Gable and Carol Lombard lived in a house on the flats of Beverly Hills right up to the time she was killed in an air crash while on a bond-selling tour in the early days of World War II. Mary Pickford lived at Pickfair, behind Ducal Gates, but you couldn't see her house from the street. Jean Harlow, who was soon to die at the age of 27, at the peak of her MGM stardom, lived in a big white movie star house on Beverly Glen. I remembered stuff like that. We went to the Brown Derby for lunch and had cob salad, which was a specialty of the house. The Brown Derby was built in the shape of a derby. I already knew Luella Parsons and Barbara Stanwyck often lunched there, but they weren't there that day, much to my disappointment. We went to Schwab's, and I tried to imagine on which stool Lana Turner had been sitting when she was discovered by Mervyn Leroy. Schwab's was full of starlets, drinking coffee at the counter, buying makeup, and reading what I learned were the trade papers, The Hollywood Reporter, and Daily Variety. It was perfect. We stayed at the Ambassador Hotel on Wilshire Boulevard, which at the time was the best place to be staying. One night we had dinner at the Coconut Grove, the famous nightclub at the Ambassador, where glamorous women wore evening dresses and gardenia corsages. Eddie Duchin's orchestra played, and Eddie, who was in a white dinner jacket and had a deep tan, looked like a million bucks leading the band. The next day, in the Ambassador pool, Eddie Duchin spoke to me. He was the first celebrity I ever talked to, and I can still remember the whole conversation. He told me I should put suntan lotion on my freckling shoulders. I was tongue-tied, and I could only mumble, thank you. Later, I learned that his wife died after childbirth. Eddie Duchin's son, Peter, grew up to be a famous band leader himself, as well as a friend. Peter's second wife, Brooke Hayward, appears in this book during the time of her earlier marriage to the actor Dennis Hopper. The rest of that trip out west with Aunt Harriet was a bit of an anticlimax for me after my five days in Hollywood. I had fallen in love with a place. I knew that Los Angeles was going to play an important part in my life. I also knew with the certainty of a child with a vision that the day would come when I would walk in the front door of the houses I had peered at from the tour bus window. Holy cats, I don't even know where to begin with this one. Y'all, little Dominic at nine teaching the tour guide things, but in the front seat still needing all the details. I just love him. Can't you see it? 
Dominic will get his reintroduction into Hollywood in 1957, but I want to take a moment and look at what the nine-year-old Dominic Dunn thinks is notorious for this trip. And this is where reality time and the recollections of our beloved well-known name dropper will get a little murky. But hey, when Nick is giving the details, you still listen. He will write, I believed everything I read then. Oh, sweet 1924 baby, when you were born, Nick, you won't always believe everything you read. Hey, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our amazing sponsors this week. And when we come back, we're going to unravel one of these notorious threads. Let's take apart one of those notorious things that Dominic Dunn writes about. He mentioned Paulette Goddard did unspeakable things to director Anatole Litvak under the nightclub table at Macombo. Oh, sweet baby Nick, this incident, whatever it might be, did not happen until 1940. But let's get into it because there is something to this story. From what I gather, the incident does not happen at Macombo. It happens at Ciro's in 1940, which is a pretty hopping place. Ciro's is now the location of the world-famous comedy store. Legendary director Billy Wilder will recall there was a big scandal at Ciro's when it was reported that Paulette Goddard was doing it on the table and on the dance floor with Anatoly Litvak. I never asked her. She was married to Charlie Chaplin. And her biographer, I asked him on oath and he swore that her shoulder strap just slipped and all he did was kiss her on the breast. It might help to mention here that Anatoly right now is married to Miriam Hopkins at this point and Paulette is married to Charlie Chaplin. So you can imagine from this recollection what perhaps could have happened. We do have an account in the biography of Miriam Hopkins by Alan R. Ellenberger about how this whole thing goes down. Miriam Hopkins at the time is rapping Lady with Red Hair, and things with her husband, Anatoly Litvak, aren't super great. They had been separated, but seeing each other, but will decidedly be over when one night at Ciro's on the Sunset Strip, there's Paulette, who has recently separated from Charlie, and well, Anatoly's really into Paulette Goddard. This particular night, again, a lot of versions about how this all goes down. One is Paulette's shoulder strap popped from her dress. Anatoly, being a gentleman, shields Paulette with a tablecloth and she jokingly slips under the tablecloth, and the crowd laughs at the playful antics. Another version claims that Anatoly is quite taken with Paulette's exposed breast and will kiss it before he covers Paulette with that tablecloth. In this version, Anatoly Litvak slips under the table. I can't tell you the coconut telegraph that happens after this. Hollywood is a buzz. Not for Nick's nine-year-old ears, because it didn't happen then. But again, other accounts say that Paulette's earring dropped under the table, and Anatoly was just being super gentlemanly and found it for her. But the gossip columnist will all state that it was quite a show, because apparently even if the earring account was credible, it might not take 15 minutes to find the earring under the table, and maybe the whole restaurant does not break into applause when you emerge from underneath the table. A lot of Anatoly's friends say, this can't be. He was way too uptight 
to even attempt this. Way too stodgy. Paulette will say, my strap slipped, he kissed my breast. Now, what may be worse is the morning after for Miriam Hopkins. Betty Davis says Miriam Hopkins was the worst actress to work with in Hollywood, at least until Faye Dunaway came around. But to be fair, Betty Davis gets the film role for Jezebel in 1938 that Miriam Hopkins plays in the stage version five years earlier, so Betty Davis and Miriam Hopkins, a little bit of bad blood. But poor Miriam shows up and the entire crew of the film that she's working on have naturally all read the papers from the night before. Her co-star, Claude Rains, is very upset about all this twittering that's happening behind her back, and he'll ask Miriam to come see him in his dressing room. But Miriam knows. He wants to warn her, but she knows, and she keeps her cool, and she thanks him for telling her the truth, and everybody returns to the set. Miriam promptly is going to head off to Mexico, wants filming raps, and evade all questions about it. Now, the odd thing here is that in 1940, when the account of all of this is happening, I can find from the New York Times, October 12th, 1939, just a few months before, that the Nevada divorce was complete between Miriam and Anatoly. This is after a two-year and one-month-long marriage. Paulette Goddard will complete her divorce with Charlie Chaplin in 1942. So for our TARDIS-equipped Dominic Dunn, there may have been unspeakable things happening that night at Ciro's, but it had not yet happened when he was visiting Aunt Harriet in that 1935 timeline. It is a legendary tale, whatever the tale might be, but no one's really talking about it anymore, and now the rumor is just dust in the wind. And y'all, that's our first episode of Notorious. We are going to travel all sorts of places this season, but I would be remiss if I didn't begin here in celebration of nine-year-olds everywhere with big dreams and sassy maiden aunts who help those kids dream those big dreams too. Thank you so much for listening. Your support and kindness is truly incredible, and I am so grateful for this community. One little bit of excellent news for those who have asked about Patreon options for Done and Done to be able to support the show. Patreon.com, Done and Done is live and available for you to get in on the community, get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and some other benefits too. Good stuff all around. And investigators, many threads have been woven just into this introduction, and it's Valentine's week and Done and Done's anniversary too. Stay tuned, investigators. Your done days aren't over yet this week. We're going to meet again sooner than you know. But until we do... Stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.